0: From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, DC, this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to the HPS Insights Podcast and our special series, on higher education. I'm Stacy Kerr, former Chief Communications Officer at Georgetown University, a partner here at HPS and primary contact for our education team. In this special series on higher ed, we're taking a deeper look at the sector in a series of conversations based on our recent analysis and education on the hard realities facing higher ed. This series will bring guests to the discussion to dig in on the economics of the higher ed sector. We will be talking to university presidents, investment officers, and leaders from public affairs who have the challenging and critical responsibility for articulating these complex financing structures to their many stakeholders. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Matt McDonald and Elliot Owensby, who are both students of the higher ed sector. And our guest for this episode is Brent Colburn, the Vice President of Public Affairs and Communications at Princeton University. Brent is here to give perspective on the challenges he's seeing facing the higher education sector, particularly as they relate to the underlying economic realities. Matt, Brent, and Elliot, hello and welcome.
1: Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. It's, it's nice to to talk to you today.
0: Yeah. Thank you all the way f- up, up the Eastern seaboard <laughs> in, uh, in Princeton. But Brent, let me give you a proper introduction to be um, to be both a gracious host, but also because I think your background makes your perspective particularly interesting right now in this moment as we see what the higher education sector is facing. You're currently the VP for Public Affairs and Communications at Princeton. Prior to this, you spent time in Silicon Valley helping Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg establish their foundation, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And you spent years, really your formation in government and democratic politics for those that don't know brent was the communications director for president obama's re-election campaign in 2012 and served a number of leadership roles in the obama administration ending his service as the assistant to the secretary of defense for public affairs the senior public affairs official for the world's largest employer and the principal advisor to the secretary of defense for communication strategy media relations public information and community relations Brent also served as the Chief of Staff at HUD, the Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs at DHS, and the Director of External Affairs at FEMA. I'm not even including your many campaigns and your stint as a residential fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Brent, that is really quite the resume. Your background is one of a kind. Thank you for joining us as a guest here on HPS Insights.
1: It's good to be here. You you left out my most important resume line, which is that I spent 2001 sitting three seats down from you at the DCCC. That's uh, right. Uh, so that's right. You we know.
0: were all assistants back in the day with some other other notable names who have gone on to much more important jobs than I have. But
1: uh, um, good so time. No, good time excited to be here and excited to talk about higher ed. It's, it's, as you've noted, it's a fascinating time and and what under, under even normal circumstances is a pretty fascinating industry.
0: Yeah, great. Well, I want to start by talking about your role at Princeton. Um, In addition to being accomplished um, as someone who already, who also spent time as a senior leader in higher ed, I know that all of your background serves you well for the very fundamental but critical challenge of communicating with multiple stakeholders about complicated issues in a transparent way, which is really what requ- universities are required to do. So I, I know it's easy for folks to think about um, you know, the students and the research, but there's really a lot more to university uh, communicating very complicated groups of stakeholders. So maybe you can just start by sharing with us a little bit about your responsibilities and position at Princeton.
1: Sure. Uh, so, um, as you know from your time at Georgetown, uh, every university is structured a little bit different. Um, but my position here at Princeton, um, you know, my my primary duties are I oversee all of our public communications and kind of state, local, and federal government affairs. So universities intersect with government at all levels all the time. So we, you know, we we manage those relationships for the university. Um, one of the things i love about my work at all the places that you mentioned is when you're in that kind of communications and outreach role it also oftentimes give you gives you a seat at the table just for general strategic decision making and and all the things that go into running an institution so
0: and actually there's a really interesting dynamic going on kind of over the last decade where universities are plucking people with resumes like yours from really sophisticated um, government service to come because we've had that type of experiencing, experience sort of navigating at higher levels and bringing them in and giving them the seat at the table. I mean, we've seen more and more universities kind of elevating the role of the chief communications officer and making it really um, part of the senior leadership team.
1: I think that's absolutely right. And, and it's interesting, you know, I, I always say when I talk to colleagues or when I, when I talk about our role at the university, In many ways, higher ed has been on the back end of this dramatic change in the communication space over the last 10 years. Right. We just haven't had the same uh, Traditionally, the same market pressures that have caused businesses to move. We haven't had the same incentives that uh, require political campaigns and government to move. So we're kind of on the back end and then Right. uh you know universities that um are blessed with resources like Princeton are on the back end of the back end of that curve we because we really haven't had to figure out some of the at least marketing functions that many universities have to have to master to make sure that they're getting students and seats because that's so much a part of the revenue mix that I know we're going to talk about today so
2: yeah so yeah.
1: so it, it's great so it's you know my other so my day job I do the communications and and government affairs work but I think equally as important get to sit at the table of what we call here at uh here at princeton our cabinet which is kind of the the 12 or so people who uh from the academic and administrative side that help really um you know help the president and the trustees make decisions about where princeton's going to go
0: yeah which has probably never been more um intense
1: yeah it's uh um you know i took this job for a work-life balance move as much yeah. as anything else <laughs>
0: and uh, and well-
1: I- like everybody, I could
0: have that, told you
1: that. <laughs> that. That was already out the window. Now it's a hundred percent out the window. So. Yeah. Well, it's there's it's hard
3: an to old... even tell the difference between uh, work and life these days. Never mind the balance. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's right. It, in every way possible,
1: right? It used to be <laughs> that's because we could never leave the office, and now it's because we can never leave the house. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there's an there's an old joke in higher ed that the politics are so high because the stakes are so low, which right. I never never felt was true during my time at. <laughs> And, and absolutely should be taken out of everybody's lexicon now as it relates to higher education.
2: That's
0: right. So we're going to talk more broadly than just Princeton today um, about university finances and the higher ed sector. Um, Moody's has just put out a new report with an interesting projection that there will be a 2 to 4% increase in enrollments in the fall, that university enrollments actually increase when unemployment increases as students look to broaden their skill sets, um, and I think with all of the you know, talk about students deferring and what's gonna happen in the fall, that might be a little counterintuitive. And um, you know, Moody's projects that even if enrollment increases, net tuition, which we talk about net, net price, net tuition, revenue and other um, student revenue for the, for the coming fiscal year in 2021 will likely decline between five and 13%. And that market share will likely shift to favor lower priced higher ed options like community colleges, so uh, Matt, I actually wanted to get your take. Were you surprised by that?
3: No, no. Um, I, I mean this is this is kind of what we saw in the last cycle too. Is that people pulled forward additional education, or you know, listen, like if you lose your job and everybody's telling you to retrain, there's ways to think about that stuff. The tuition side of it is interest i mean the tuition i the one dimension of it that does surprise me is the is the size of the tuition decrease on that i don't i mean on some level i don't know how how universities are dealing with the resource question against that tuition decline i mean like you look at some point people have to pay money to pay the professors to teach the class right and so and
0: the, that's
3: just that's part of
0: and the room and board. yeah all of them yeah
3: that's part of how that stuff works so um I mean, it seems like a real challenge. I think one thing, that, um, one thing that's interesting to watch on that score and what we saw from kind of the last time around that we did this is that um, there, will be, there will be problems in the aftermath of that dynamic, is that you, you fundamentally are talking about some portion of people who see it as an opportunity to take the time to go seek higher education there are some people who do not have a choice. And this is kind of what they're able to do in the moment. And, you know, one thing about student aid is that people are guaranteed federal loans. um, And there was, it was not uncommon around the last crisis for people to take out those loans as a way, as a way to live, honestly, to just make ends meet, and then, and then just deal with tomorrow's problems tomorrow. So it's
0: yeah, very different from even the time that all of us were undergraduates.
1: And
3: look I mean compounding that
1: that problem is you know look as a sector we wrestle a lot with debt uh, and what student debt means and what the drivers of student debt are. Again, this is an issue Princeton is lucky to not have to face directly. We have a, a very robust uh, no loan financial aid program here. so most of our students um, graduate with, with zero or little debt. Um, But one of the biggest drivers is really people that take out loans and then don't complete a degree, right? So either they're taking it out because they need it for their financial situation, uh, as Matt was laying out, or they get two years into the degree now, the economy starts to rebound and they abandon that effort to go back to work. It's when you have the yoke of debt without the credential and the training that comes from a four year, even a two-year degree that you, you can really find yourself in some in some dire straits financially.
3: And just to just to add to that, one of um one of the real quirks of higher education and financing and stuff that people have a hard time wrapping their mind around is that defaults on student debt are way more likely for very low dollar loans than they are for high dollar loans. Someone who has $100,000, $200,000 in debt is a doctor or a lawyer. And while it's a a huge amount of debt, the income that they generate as a result of those degrees can pay that debt loan. What you get is, as Brent said, is that someone who maybe started, took on the debt for a Uh, a semester or two semesters, and they might have a couple thousand, five thousand, and they don't get any benefit on the back end of their education, and and they have the increased debt, and they're just not able to service it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I also think it's interesting, you know, if, if, you know, a lay person, and again, I was this person three years ago. I mean, it's been very interesting to kind of get to know the higher education sector from the inside. But, you know, if a lay person heard that enrollments were going to be up, they would think, well, financially universities will be will be in a good space right because the analogy I think people draw on their minds is that it's almost like a, a restaurant right it's like the more 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 tables you can cover right the more you're going to be able to to drive your revenues and because of the the strange way that we fund higher education in this country that's not necessarily true right so um, you know the first lesson I think you learn in higher ed and, and you know Stacy I remember you saying things like this when you started at Georgetown is that higher ed is unique and then every school within higher ed is also unique, right? So it's hard to take really broad assumptions about the the sector. But one thing that is similar about them is they all fund their teaching and research uh, missions through this kind of bundle of revenue streams, right? And so it's not just tuition, it's not just room and board. It's also uh, state funding for state schools. It's also Uh, federal research dollars. For some schools, it's athletics. It's things like hosting conferences, right? right? At the same time, it's actually, at least in the short term, more expensive for us to do the remote learning that we've had to do because we have to put new systems in place. We have to bring on expertise we didn't have before. So if you just think about that kind of input to output ratio, you can have a higher enrollment and still be way underwater from a cost perspective.
0: Yeah. And and Brent, I know you've mentioned before how we don't price any other good The way that we price higher ed, yeah,
1: it's 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 a totally strange strange uh, thing. So um, you know, we like every school have a a sticker price, if you will, right? So if you pay room and board and uh, um, full tuition, and it's it's you know over sixty thousand dollars a year, which is a is a is a huge commitment from a financial perspective. We also have over sixty percent of our students on some sort of financial aid. you know, again, um, exclusively no loan financial aid, right? So, you know, if you take 60% of our 5,000 students, that means we we have over 3,000 individual pricings going on at the exact same time, right? So we have everybody, and we do, we go through in a very bespoke way and look at every single student and say, okay, in our calculations, here's what the school's going to cover, and here's what we're going to ask for from you and your family. Um, And that's everything from people that pay every dollar that you read when you, look up on the website what our tuition and fee package is to a number of students that pay nothing. And if anything, we're we're expending resources to try to get them uh, to to be able to come here and participate at Princeton University. So, you know, it's hard to imagine if you're a car salesman, for instance, having that type of a pricing structure, right? Here's here's what it says we, we, we charge you, here's what you individual is charged, and here's the average of what we charge, which is somewhere in the middle there, right? Then we're also, we're not charging full costs. So, um, you know, we're very lucky to be an endowment driven university. Um, The majority of the costs at this university don't come from things like tuition. So, you know, we estimate kind of back of the envelope math that um, even people paying full tuition only about, that only covers about half the cost of having that student on campus for a year, right? The rest of it comes out of other funding sources, in our case, mostly out of our endowment
0: yeah so you know we we addressed um, in our paper that the um, that piece about endowments and I want to talk a little bit about that and sort of the general misperceptions um, around how these funds can be used Princeton is one of what they call the elites in the industry yeah. right and you're you're sort of in a very rarefied group of people with a extremely substantial endowment but how do you all think about sort of endowment at Princeton and what it what um, and and sort of your perspective on it in higher ed
1: yeah sure so um and again you know i i you understand the misperceptions around these issues these are misperceptions that i had before i worked in higher education and i think to most americans when you hear the word endowment you know your 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 instinct is to think of it as a giant savings account or a rainy day fund you know basically that an institution has been piling up resources and and that's not what uh, an endowment is, at least for the institutions like Princeton that have these kind of legacy endowments that we've been building up, in our case, for centuries. I mean, there there are dollars in our endowment that you can trace back to the Revolutionary War period where where money was given to the university expressly for the purpose of teaching and research mission. And and, and uh, to take a half step back, you know, I think it's all also important to remind people the goal of a place like Princeton, we're not trying to turn a profit, right? What we're trying to do is provide a high quality education to our students, support the research that is done here, but then be able to do that in perpetuity. So it's not like we just wanna be able to do it this year, we wanna be able to know we can do it in 20 years, in 40 years, in our case, in 100 years. And one of the ways we do that is through an endowment. So this is, um, it's the seed money for it, is contributions from uh, alumni and others who wanna help the institution we then have an investment corporation, in our case an organization called Princo, that manages that investment the same way you would manage an annuity. And what, what we're using to help pay for education for our students and to support our researchers is payouts from that from that uh, investment vehicle, if you will, right? So we are living off of the endowment. We have to manage the endowment in a way that we know we can uh, use that those funds this year, use those funds next year, use those funds the year after. You know, we calculate that if if we stopped using it as a, if we sold all of our assets and turned them to cash tomorrow and just paid down out of the endowment, out of the current rate that we depend on it for operations, we would burn through our billions and billions of dollars in 20 years. So we're wow. using over $1.5 billion a year to help support operations on campus. So, so we have to have that. You know, if, if you think about your own personal investments and you think about, um, you know, how you sell those off to get cash when you need something? How you live off, um, you know, returns from those investments? The broader base you have, the more you can use in an annuitized way to help pay for your lifestyle. And and look, that's what we're fortunate enough to do here. That is even different from another type of endowment that oftentimes I think people in higher ed think about, which is. Money that's given for a very specific purpose. So think of an endowed professorship, right? Someone who is kind of walling off a set of funds to say this has to be used to support a professor that's going to teach exclusively on environmental science. We talk about as our endowment. We talk about it as that large uh, that large set of investments that allow us to help support our operations here.
3: As a follow-up on the endowment piece, this is uh, I'm gonna I, I forget the source, but it was somewhere in the Econ Twitter universe. And someone was making the point that there is not that endowments. And I think it was about uh, Stanford, to be honest, but because they had announced cuts, I think, in the current pandemic environment and this sort of thing. And someone made the point that endowments are not structured to smooth out over moments of need, that they are, to your point, really just kind of perpetuity oriented vehicles. Has there been any conversation in the sector about that model and whether an adjustment would be appropriate? I mean, especially in, in light of kind of the conversation that we had around aid and some of these other things is that because of the nature of how that is structured is that moments of need will hit universities harder than in theory they would have in the past even though it's not my impression that endowments have been st- investment strategies have been adapted to that um, that environment.
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question, and and you know I, I think that you had mentioned you're going to talk to some endowment managers potentially at some point. They they clearly can speak to this with more sophistication than I can. But but I can tell you. Um, you know, the endowment based model, at least right now, has allowed us to avoid some of those hard decisions that other universities have had to make. So, You know, I'm not, you know, we have made adjustments to um, address the situation responsibly. So we, we will not be doing merit increases this year, for instance, but so far we, we haven't had to do the layoffs that most universities have had to do. We're going to be able to maintain our uh, generous uh, financial aid program, even though clearly we're going to have more students who qualify next year than we even do this year. So the long-term approach does actually, it's harder to dip into like you would a rainy day fund, but it provides stability that allows you to navigate crisis in a different way. Um, You know, the one thing that we have talked about is we talk a lot uh, here at Princeton about generational equity. So we want to be making decisions today that don't just benefit students today, but benefit students in 20 years, right? So in an ideal world, you're able to both meet this crisis, but also continue um, um, to invest in, you know, an environmental studies building that we were getting ready to, to build or things that will help make this a world-class university in 20 years, not, not tomorrow. You know, I think the question will become, if this is a, a more sustained crisis, is this one of those moments when generational equity means spending more now? Right, that this is the generation that's going to need more support to be equitable to those who came before and those who will come after. We haven't hit that yet. That would mean making choices on the spending and revenue side, and that could include a, a you know, increasing the payout on the endowment.
0: So, Brent, I want to get your perspective on our premise, and and you mentioned that um, the government affairs is part of your portfolio at Princeton, and. Um, You know, given all these misperceptions and misunderstandings that we've been talking about, do you think that there is a real challenge among policymakers as the sector looks for help in the recovery and aid in the recovery? Is this just going to be market forces that some of these institutions are going to go away I mean you you know yeah
1: so I mean there's a lot wrapped up in that question right so if if you talk about the challenge of advocacy it's it's we just saw a real life example of it with the higher education funding that was in the cares act so um, you know to go back to Matt's point about projecting strength I think people see these institutions as um you know, uh, it's hard to imagine colleges and universities going away, right? They, they feel in some ways the same way that government does or that other kind of, you know, perpetual institutions do. And the reason that's problematic is um, lawmakers tend to shortchange institutional support and put a premium on student support. So a lot of the money that was available to colleges and universities out of the CARES Act was um, earmarked to be used specifically for students, right? Now that's not a bad thing, but if you can't keep the lights on, it doesn't matter if you're able to support an individual student. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I mean, I know I was talking to, you know, university presidents and some folks in the industry, and there was so much confusion for so long about what they could use it for, and then frustration.
1: That's right. And then, um, so I think there's that piece. That's a huge advocacy piece, right? So how do you get people to wanna support the institution itself? Um, And and look, I mean, we're very lucky here because we're not a state institution, but state institutions have taken an enormous hit in terms of direct support from state governments, again, to the kind of bricks and mortar, keep the lights on uh, activities that make a university uh, available to people, right? So, and it's harder and harder to advocate for those things. I also think, look, we're we're as a sector caught up in this moment where, um, like everybody, everything is political, even if it shouldn't be. And and you know, so investing in higher education has its own political signaling, just like everything else does. And and I think that's hurt us, right? We've moved. If you look at various public opinion polls, um, you know, I want my my son or daughter to go to a four year college is is decreasing for the first time, you know, in in anyone's memory. It's not plummeting, but the curve's going in the wrong direction. And then if you break that down further, that tends to be more the opinion on the right. And, and that's, we see that as problematic. And also, so we're, we're fighting those battles uh, in terms of trying to get um, you know, support from government and support from others um, as, we, as we kind of not just navigate this crisis. I mean, it's, it's something I think you know, we've all talked about before, but every single thing you're seeing in higher education right now existed on February 1st, just like it does as we head toward July 1st of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it may have brought some things into sharper relief and it may have accelerated some things, but these underlying issues have been here and and, um, and need to be solved.
2: Absolutely. I would I would add on that, Brent. I think, you know, part of our view and there's some well-established research around universities and colleges as huge economic drivers. And, you know, we've discussed the kind of dual role both in educating students and, you know, certainly in the case of Princeton schools, producing world-class research. And I think when we think about, you know, how to best advocate and how to tell that story, it has to be framed as, you know, benefits to, yes, to, of course, to students, but the broader societal and economic benefits, you know, if God forbid some of these schools go away, that ripple effect in terms of local employment and local tax revenues is substantial. And I think in our view, you know, as we look to craft the kind of data-driven pieces, has to be a big role in telling your story and making the case for the value of higher education and the value of some of these institutions specifically. And the need
0: for more higher ed, right?
2: Right, that's right.
1: I think that's right. And it's and it's hyper-local, right? So, you know, we're, we're working in close partnership with the town of Princeton. On the positive side, the fact that we haven't had to make layoffs is, has been a huge stabilizing force in this community because, you know, people are still getting money in their pockets. Uh, a lot of our employees are taxpayers here in Princeton, but, you know, these there, there's the there's the large scale things we like to talk about, like the companies that are spun off from the research that's created at these universities, the, the businesses that are established, the, the workforce, but small things like, you know, we have a local coffee shop here that we depend on almost exclusively for meetings and for um, conferences to provide coffee. It's an enormous hit to them right now that we may not have students back on campus in the fall and that even if we have students, we won't be able to have large scale gatherings. So. Well, you know, we really are anchor institutions in a lot of these communities.
0: Right. Well, Brent, I wanna, um, you've been generous with your time and I wanna just sort of close with your thoughts on what you think is on the immediate horizon for the industry and as we're going through a lot of crises at once now, right? And um, what do you think is gonna shift in the immediate next several months in response here?
1: Yeah, so, you know, like every uh, university across the country right now, and, and every university is going to have their own answer to this question. The most, And so uh, I think people tend to simplify that to an open or closed question. And the reality is, you know, a big part of that is can we bring undergraduates back? But even if we have undergraduates back on campus, colleges and universities are going to look really different until we're able to really wrestle COVID-19 to the ground, right? Until we really have a either a therapeutic or until we have a vaccine. You know, the things that made our college experience so special, like, large-scale indoor gatherings and, you know, parties and conferences and athletic events, they're all just going to look different, right? So we're trying to figure that out. That's our, our most immediate question. I think the second question for the sector is, is survivability of various institutions. I mean, there are a lot of schools, and again, everyone has their own revenue model, but but those that are much more student-dependent for revenue are going to be facing potentially make-or-break moments. And, and it's, it's horrible to see institutions put in a position where the decision they're trying to make about the health and safety of their students and also their staff and faculty i mean we have a lot of staff and faculty who who fall into high risk categories for covid-19 they're trying to do the right thing for their uh, from health and safety perspective are feeling enormous economic pressure to get students back on campus so they can survive. Right. And so yeah. I think that tension is going to play out over the summer and into the fall as we see flare ups potentially of COVID on some of these campuses. Um, you know, I think long term, you know, my hope is like every uh, sector in society. You know this, it seems like, uh, you know, with the the economic crisis the pandemic and 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 now some of the kind of larger social and racial conversations going on it feels like a moment for every sector to kind of take a hard look at itself and figure out how it fits in modern society so it's hard to do during a pandemic but i hope that this will bring about a conversation for higher ed about you know what are we trying to provide to folks how do we do that in the best way possible and how do we contribute to the community while we're doing it um you know our takeaway as princeton is that this is all um, validated our model, right? We think that, you know, nothing uh, like having kids off campus to, to make you realize how important that community of scholarship is, but that may not be the answer for everybody. And we should have an honest conversation about what that mix should look like.
0: Yeah, it's clear we're not going back uh, to the old ways across the board. And yeah. it will just be super interesting to see what, um, what, what comes back and how it's altered by all of this. Yeah. So this has been a great conversation. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us.
1: No, this has been great. I, I look forward to a time when we can do this in person and uh, yeah. i love to have you guys all up to Princeton.
0: We'll, we'll be there. We'll be there. Thanks so much. Well, thank you all for tuning in to another episode of HPS Insights and our special series on higher education. And special thanks to our guest today, Brent Colburn. Please make time to tune in for more conversation on disruption and challenge in the higher ed sector. We'll be joined by Dr. Debbie Cottrell, the president of Texas Lutheran, uh, a small private to share perspective on what uh, small universities are facing in this environment. We, um, we have a good conversation coming up from chief investment officer, as I've mentioned, running a big university endowment to talk more about the economics of the sector. You can read our full analysis and education on hard realities facing higher ed at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash insights. If you're interested in talking more about the sector or particular challenges you're facing please reach out at highered at hamiltonps.com. You can find out more about HPS's work and our podcasts at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or by following us on Twitter at HBS Insights. I'm your host for this series, Stacy Kerr. And as always, thank you for listening to HPS Insights. Take good care. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight and visit us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.